Good morning, everyone. I was away this past week with the mission team that visited the children that we support at the Amistad Ministry in Cochabamba, Bolivia. It's a Christ-centered home for abused and abandoned children. But look what happens while I'm away. They change the bulletin. They change the location of the 11 o'clock service. I mean, what's going on here? But seriously, I, I do look forward to visiting Amistad because you can't help but fall in love with the children. Some new children have been added to the house that we support, and we got to meet them for the very first time. Three siblings named Allie, Alex, and Axel. Boy, are they cute. If adoptions were allowed in Bolivia, which they're not, you'd want to bundle up all three of these kids and bring them home. But it was an exhausting trip because while we were there, unseasonable rains caused serious mudslides. Cochabamba is sort of in a bowl at the base of the Andes Mountains, so all the water coming down from the mountains overflowed a, a local river and brought this mudslide from the, uh, uh, down into the northern edge of the city, just a few blocks from where the Amistad location is. Five people were killed, including a 12-year-old boy, and many homes were destroyed. And because of the threat of further mudslides, all the children had to be evacuated from Amistad in the middle of the night. They were taken in ambulances to a high school outside the uh, flood zone. Our team was able to help with uh, moving supplies and food and other necessities to the places where the children would be staying. And we ended up having 14 children live with us at the guest house where the visitors stay. The mudslides completely altered our plans, and it was a little chaotic, but I'm so glad we were there at the right time to help out. Everyone's safe, and the kids moved back to their homes on Tuesday. But as much as we all love being with the children, after five days of that, we were all pretty exhausted, and all of us on the team, we were ready to come home. Besides seeing our loved ones, uh, there were two things that we were all looking forward to in going home. First was being able to shower and not worry about, you know, drinking the water. And second was being able to sleep in our own beds. Home is where we find rest, where we recover energy and strength. Home is that place of, of safety, of the familiar, where we can just be ourselves. Like, like Dorothy says in The Wizard of Oz, there is no place like home. And I was thinking about that in connection with our new message series for Lent. If my physical body needs a home to go to in order to be healthy and to find rest, what about my soul? Does my soul have a home? When was the last time my soul truly felt at home and felt at rest? And I've been meditating on Psalm 62, verse 5, and I'd like you to say it with me if you would. You'll see it on the screen. My soul finds rest in God alone. My hope comes from Him. During the seven weeks of the season of Lent that leads to Resurrection Sunday on Easter, we're going to explore really what that little verse means. So say it again with me, please. My soul finds rest in God alone. My hope comes from Him. To get us started, we're going to look at two verses tucked away in one of the shortest books of the Bible. A letter in the New Testament known to us as 3 John that references the health of our souls. It was written by the Apostle John, the same disciple who labeled himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. It was his nickname. He defined himself by how much Christ loved him. That's a, that's a pretty good nickname. I think if every one of us adopted that nickname, that, that attitude, that awareness, it would solve a lot of our internal turmoil that we face. 
Would you be able to say that about yourself, to kind of look yourself in the mirror each morning and say, I am the disciple whom Jesus loves. So listen to what John wrote to a man named Gaius, who was a Christian, a, a friend, and a church leader. This is 3 John, verses 1 and 2. To my dear friend Gaius, whom I love in the truth, dear friend, I pray that you may enjoy good health, and that all may go well with you, even as your soul is getting along well. The Message Bible paraphrased the verse this way. We're best of friends, and I pray for good fortune in everything you do, and for your good health, that every, yet your everyday affairs prosper as well as your soul. These tiny verses hidden away in a short book of the Bible, rarely studied, but don't let that fool you. Embedded in this verse is a truth that we will spend the rest of our lives trying to understand and apply. Each of us has a soul, and that soul needs to be healthy. You see, too often Christians assume that once they're saved, once they're forgiven, accepted by God through Christ's actions on the cross and resurrection, the inside us is kind of all taken care of. We have peace with God, so that must mean automatically we have peace with ourselves. If we're right before God, then we must be right on the inside of ourselves. But is it well with our souls? God does desire that we prosper in everyday affairs of life, as the message puts it. But that's not the whole story. Too often we gloss over the part about the health of our souls. And first and foremost, God wants our souls to be well and healthy and solid. Actually, I would say that Jesus teaches that until our souls are healthy and prospering, nothing else can really prosper. In other words, our health and wellness and wealth don't move from the outside in, but from the inside out. Jesus put it this way in Matthew chapter 16, verse 26. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and lose their soul? Or what would anyone give in exchange for their soul? In other words, you can have a Mercedes in the driveway, have more Instagram followers than the Pope, but unless your soul is healthy, you won't truly be happy or content or at peace. And conversely, you might be struggling through the most painful, confusing time of your life, but if your soul is in a healthy place, you'll be okay. You'll find the strength and the hope that you need to weather the storms. So there's an important question that I'm willing to bet maybe nobody has ever asked you before. How is your soul? How is your soul? That's not a normal question. That's not normally how do we talk to people about the state of their being. We usually ask, how are you? How you doing? Most of the time, that's just a surfacey kind of question. I mean, people don't really want to know what's going on or how you really are. They're just being polite, and a surface-level question normally gets a surface-level response. Great, fine, no problem, same-o, same-o, and that's the end of the conversation, just the surface. If the how are you goes to a little bit deeper, you might say something about the immediate context around you. You might talk about the weather or the Olympics or why the train is running late. Still pretty much on the surface. If you go to another level, you may actually begin to talk about yourself and Maybe share something personal. My kids are doing this. I had a kidney stone. My dog threw up on my shoes. You know, something real that's actually happening in your world. But it's still just factual. You don't really let anyone see the real you. 
And this is where people from the Northeast kind of get into trouble when they travel to places in the South or the Midwest because they're not used to the fact that everybody will say hello and ask you how you are. How you doing? I mean, strangers in the 7-Eleven, random people on the street, store clerks will actually look you in the eye and say very sincerely, how are you? And they seem genuinely interested. And if you're from the Northeast, you can get all freaked out about that. Like, what's going on? Why are these people talking to me? Why are strangers acting like they're my best friends? And so you have to explain to people who are native to New Jersey or New York, it's called being friendly being friendly and that's kind of an alien concept in this part of the world where we're kind of conditioned to walk right by people without even acknowledging that they exist but take it one step deeper and a close friend asks you how are you you might actually get to the point of being a little more vulnerable a little more real about what's going on in your life you get to the level of not just trivia or context or bits of information but to the level of your emotions and your personal struggles. Someone asks, how are you? And the answer, real answer is, hey, I'm a mess. I think my husband is having an affair. I'm struggling with an addiction to pornography. I, I, I'm really depressed and I don't know why. I'm worried about my future. I'm, I'm feeling all overwhelmed by all the pressures my parents are putting on me about my college applications. Uh, I lost my job, and I've got a lot of overdue bills. I, I start chemo on Thursday. Boy, all of a sudden, that how are you takes on a very different meaning. You're in a very different conversation. And you can't just say, well, have a nice day and keep on walking. And when you ask the question, how's your soul, that goes even one level deeper. Because when someone asks about your soul, that encompasses not only your emotions and your personal struggle, struggles, but probes a little bit more to ask, and where is God in all this? Where are you with the Lord? What does, where, where does Christ fit into your heart and fit into your life? There are things that are even deeper than emotion. Asking about your soul gets to the root, gets beyond kind of our petty temptations, beyond the things that you normally wouldn't talk about with anybody else. Your soul, that take us, takes you to the deepest self, your, your true self, to the deepest part of you, beyond your emotions, to your deepest desires, to your will, that inner place where you actually decide what you are going to do and how you're going to feel and who you really are. Your soul, it's that place where you justify your actions or rationalize your excuses. The soul, that's the command center. That's the, the center of your life. That's the engine room that actually powers the rest of your life. How's your soul? This is a question that asks about your experience of God's presence and his grace at that deepest level. Not just God on the surface of your life. Not just a smiley face religion of shallow repentance and sporadic obedience. Not just the faith that treats Jesus as kind of that spiritual EMT that you call upon to fix you up whenever you take a tumble or hit a dead end. Not just the surfacey faith where God is just, uh, you know, an addition to an already busy life, just another piece of the pie, another activity to check off, something else to put on the calendar. How's your soul? How do you let God get at the real you, that inner self? 
You see, the secular view of human nature is that we're divided into two parts. The lower animal nature of passions and instinct that comes from, you know, some kind of evolutionary baggage that we all carry as human beings. But there's also a higher nature of mind and intellect and reason. And most philosophers from the ancient Greeks like Plato and Aristotle to more modern ones like, like L. Ron Hubbard in Scientology would describe human nature as a war between these two things, a, a highly evolved being's the, the high nature of reason is supposed to overcome that lower nature of animal passions. So Robert Louis Stevenson wrote that famous story about this struggle, the, the story of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Dr. Jekyll experimented with chemical injections to release that lower nature and the persona of Mr. Hyde. But Mr. when Mr. Hyde came out, he couldn't be controlled. He ended up murdering a number of people. And so a battle raged between the two, and eventually Mr. Hyde won out and had to be destroyed. The animal passions proved stronger than reason. This idea of internal struggle forms the basis for some of the most I influential movements of the last century. Marxism said that we can get rid of that animal nature through economic equality. Modern liberalism would say that we can educate out that animal nature, just give people all the right information and they'll make the right decisions. Or if that doesn't work, then the government will make decisions for the people because those who are in power are using a superior intellect and reason and that the masses do not have. That's the false appeal of socialism and its cousin fascism. The people in control know better than the people in the masses. And even most religions today teach their own form of this by saying what you really need is strict self-discipline. Follow these rules and rituals and you can control your inner passions. It's a self-salvation through self-discipline. Pray five times a day. Give this much money. Do more good deeds than bad and that's somehow going to counterbalance the evil within. But that is not the view of Scripture. We are not just intelligent animals at war with ourselves, but we are beings uniquely created in the image of God. That image has been corrupted and scarred by disobedience, by sin, by rejecting God's authority over our lives. And so our whole human nature has been affected from our emotions and passions, passions all the way through our reason and even our highest intellectual aspirations. The whole package has been tainted by sin. In fact, Scripture teaches that apart from Christ, we're actually spiritually dead. There is a deadness within us towards God, and economics or education or legislation or religion can't change that. That's not the answer. What we need is transformation. We need a power from outside ourselves to change us, a, a renewal of the soul by the Holy Spirit. We can't do that ourselves. The Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1, he says, You were dead in your transgressions and sin. Verse 3, by nature deserving of wrath. Verse 4, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. We were dead, but we were made alive with Christ. We were made alive by Christ. And we can be transformed by Christ's work within us. Romans 12, 2, Paul writes, Don't be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The Greek word for transformed is metamorphosis, a, a metamorphosis. A change takes place when God inserts his Holy Spirit into your soul, into your deepest self, 
when you put your faith in Jesus Christ. A whole new nature is yours. Your soul becomes alive through the power of Christ's Spirit. That's why simple people, uneducated people, impoverished people may be at more peace with themselves and God than all the highly educated, wealthy, powerful elites and media celebrities. Some of the most evil people in the world have been highly educated and have been very intelligent and wealthy. With greater education and more sophisticated culture, evil just gets more subtle and causes greater damage. When we put our faith in Christ, we are given a new nature, a living soul. We become alive in relation to God, and the Scripture tells us that it's possible to improve the soul's condition. The soul can be strengthened. Did you know that? We tend to think of uh, a strength only as an exterior thing. You make your, you know, your muscles stronger. How? Through, through exercise and good nutrition. and you, you, know, you work out, you do squats, you run, you eat better, you, you get the right amount of sleep. There are things that you can do to strengthen your body. Well, there are also some things that you can do to strengthen your soul. And throughout the centuries, since the time of Jesus, Christians have pride, tried to put together the right kind of exercise program to strengthen the soul, the right practices or disciplines that can be incorporated into life that will help the soul get stronger. And what is amazing is that even though this has been done by you know, a variety of groups in different centuries, by, by different denominations and, and different cultures, you know what? They have all discovered basically the same things. And they've come up with basically the same exercise program for to make your soul stronger. I just want to talk about one example of that today. Have you ever heard of the Methodist Church? I hope so. We have one just down the road from us here on Springfield Avenue in New Providence. Anybody here ever been a member of a Methodist church? You know, a few folks. We have a lot of kind of stray mutts here in the church because most people today really don't care that much about denominational labels. They just want to know what each particular church is kind of like on the inside. And, and many of the historic denominational differences that used to divide denominations have, have blurred so that we here at the Presbyterian Church at New Providence, you know, and our daughter campus at uh, New Community Church, you know, we might actually have more in common theologically and practically with a Baptist church or non-denominational church than, than we do with other churches that, that even use the Presbyterian label. You can't really tell what a local church is, church is like just by the name on the sign out front. Well, the Methodist Church got started in the mid-1700s by two brothers named Charles and John Wesley. While students at Oxford University in England, they and others formed a little club to promote spiritual growth. They were part of the Church of England, but they saw themselves as a renewal group within kind of the stodgy, petrified denomination that the Church of England had become. But like most renewal groups, eventually the Mother Church kicked them out. And so they came to the United States, and the first United uh, Methodist congregation was established in 1784. I think our Methodist church up the street is like, like in the top 10, first 10 churches started in the United States. But why were they called Methodists? Because they had a method, a method for strengthening the souls of believers. And they were very devoted, and some would even say fanatical originally, about following their method for spiritual growth. A lot of that has changed in the Methodist church. But they were very effective at the beginning in spiritual growth 
until their method just turned into rules devoid of the Holy Spirit. Like anything in the church, if the Holy Spirit's not in it, if it's not infused into it, it just turns into rules and religion. What the Wesley brothers came up with was very effective and it was very simple. Every week, outside of worship, you get together with a few people in a small group. You study the Bible together. You ask each other some serious questions about what's going on in your lives during the week. And then you hold each other accountable. And you pray together. That's it. That's the number one way you strengthen your inner being. That is how the Holy Spirit gets released into your life when you regularly get together with other believers around the Word of God to study, pray, and hold each other accountable. John and Charles Wesley pointed out that this was basically what Jesus did with his disciples. He gathered the twelve, taught them about God, and they did life together. The Wesleys reasoned that if we're serious about strengthening our faith, we should simply follow Jesus' example. The Wesleys called their weekly gatherings class meetings. And their gatherings were really the beginning of the small group movement that is alive and well in the modern church and in, in the many small groups that we offer as a congregational family. We are simply rediscovering something that Jesus did in the Gospels. What was unique, though, was the series of four questions that each of these class meetings would ask every time they met. So here are the four Methodists. This is the four questions of their method. First of all, how is it with your soul? Second, have you done all the good that you could and avoided all the evil that you could this week? Third, have you availed yourself of the means of grace? The means of grace is an expression about the things that God's grace brings into your life. You know, what did you study in the Bible this week? What did you pray about? Were you in worship? Did you receive the sacrament of the Lord's Supper? Did you share your faith with anyone? Are you, are you using your spiritual gifts and serving somehow in ministry? These are the kinds of things meant by the means of grace. And then the fourth question was this. How can we as a group best pray for you and support you? Pretty simple, right? but also so frequently resisted by believers because we don't think we have the time or we really don't want to be in that kind of accountable relationship with other Christians. I sincerely believe, and you know this, that you can't really grow as a Christian unless you're in some kind of a regular group with other believers around the study of Scripture and prayer and where you build enough trust to get real about answering the question, how's your soul? You need it, I need it, every follower of Christ needs it so that we can experience on a daily basis the truth of what King David said in Psalm 62, verse 5. Would you say that again with me? My soul finds rest in God alone. My hope comes from Him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, may you guide us in these next few weeks as we continue to look at the important aspect of how do we have a healthy soul? How do we allow you into that deepest part of who we are to see your transforming power at work. Send your Holy Spirit to teach us, Lord. Help us each to meditate on where does our soul find rest this week and to see you at work transforming each one of our hearts. We thank you now. In your name we pray. Amen.